Welcome. Uh, for those of you who I've not met, uh, my name is Dan Nellis, um, and uh, I'm actually I'm a part of the elder team as well um, with Mike and Terry, and uh, I'm also on the teaching team, which should be obvious because I'm up here getting ready to teach, so that was a bad joke. Um, so if we haven't met, I look forward to meeting you someday. Um, one thing that, uh, you know, you get to know me for a little bit, and you'll know that, like, I love pop culture, and um, I especially really love movies. You'll get to know that I love you know, just, I love watching movies. Um, now, I don't love movies to the extent that everybody uh, in this room loves movies. Um, I know that, but you could say that um, I have a very strong affection for film. Uh, I like all kinds of movies or all kinds of genres of movies, but not every kind of movie. Um, I'd say probably the top of my list would be like a good action film. I love a movie that kind of keeps me engaged and gets my adrenaline going. You know, when I, when I walk out of it, I, feel, I still feel like I'm kind of, you know, in the movie a little bit. Not a huge fan of um, romance, romantic movies, although um, I can um, watch a good romantic comedy every now and then. I'll watch this movie anytime it comes on. I love Groundhog Day. Um, and especially I'll watch a romantic comedy if it involves golf. Um, so, again, movies that kind of appeal to my, my uh, personality and the things that I like. Um, don't like horror movies, so not going to see any of that up there. Um, I don't like, uh, I just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Um, I will watch a, a, a zombie movie. Um, it depends on what kind of zombie we're talking about, though, the fast versus the slow and that kind of thing. Now, I will, the, I can be persuaded, though, if you can hit the trifecta, if you can bring the three seemingly competing genres of romantic zombie comedies together, then I'm all in, all right? I will watch a good rom com any day. Um, so as far as action movies go, I think... Uh, one thing that appeals to me is a good chase. I love movies that involve a chase. Um, a lot of times they involve a case of mistaken identity. Some of these are movies you're going to be like, I've never heard of this movie before, but I'd encourage you <laughs> to uh, consider maybe this one, maybe not some of the other ones. Um, but sometimes it's a case of mistaken identity. Some, sometimes it's somebody that assumes a false identity. I love the feeling of like dread, that feeling of inevitability that comes upon you when you're watching somebody... You know, just this unstoppable force, right? Just kind of closing in on its prey, right? I love a good um, car chase, too. I think that's probably the thing in an action movie that, that I love the most. I love the speed and the adrenaline. Some car chases are just pure eye candy. They just, like, they're just outlandish. They have no basis in reality for me, and I, I can just walk out of there and go, yeah! You know, I, I get done, and I get behind the wheel of my car after the movie, and I'm just, like, I'm still, like, feeling like I could, you know, be, be that. But Probably more than anything, I like a, a, a good car chase that has a bit of reality to it, where it's like in a setting that I can understand and with people that I can understand and relate to, right? Um, again, this is an oldie but a goodie. Um, I think one thing about um, chase movies that they all have in common is that they all involve two sides pitted against each other, right? You got On one side, you've got the hunter, and on the other side, you've got the hunted. And both of these sides are desperate to achieve their goal, right? The hunter wants to catch his prey, and the hunted wants to avoid being captured at all costs. And, and the thing that appeals to me about um, these kind of things, about these kind of chase movies, isn't just the action, although that, that is kind of fun to see. But, and you, you'll think this is a stretch, but I, I actually think that I enjoy watching the change that happens in a character, the transformation that happens in a character as they're kind of being pushed to the edge, right? As they're backed into a corner, being kind of pushed, pushed to the edge of, you know, of their capabilities, um, and they're desperate, right? Because 
I believe that, you know, really it's, it's only when a person is at their most desperate, right? When someone's backed into a corner, when, they, when they've kind of lost everything, that you really get to see what's inside of them. And that's, that interests me, seeing kind of what's in the heart of a person. We've been, um, as a church, going through First uh, and Second Samuel. We've been in First Samuel for a little while. Um, we're not doing like a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, but we're covering big themes and big parts of it. And the stories found in First and Second Samuel, um, they occur after a pretty rough period in the time, in the early history of ancient Israel. Uh, we call it the time of the judges. It was so important that they got their own book named after them. Uh, we've been talking about how after these this kind of this rough patch, this rough period of time, that the people of Israel demanded a human king um, to rule over them. And, and God, through his prophet Samuel, he, he told them exactly what they were going to get if they got a king, the good and the bad. Um, but they were persistent in their desire to be like the nations around them. And so God, through Samuel, gave them their first king, Saul. Now, Saul had qualities and characteristics that many people, even now, would find um, admirable and attractive in a leader of a nation. But he lacked the thing that was the most important. He lacked a heart that was like fully God's. And so after a series of missteps and mistakes, God made it clear to Saul that his rule was going to come to an end and that another would take his place. And it's at this point that we meet David, right? We've been going through this history. We meet David. He's the plucky uh, handsome, he's brave and talented. Anyone know Plucky? No? Okay. What does it mean? Spirited and determined, courage, right? So he's just, he's a man after God's own heart, right? And God, God plucked him out and he anointed him as to be the, the next king of Israel, right? But now he finds himself in a very unenviable position, right? Now he has to serve directly under the uh, king, the rule of the one that he's supposed to replace, has anyone ever done that before, right? Having to be kind of trained up and for the person that you're going to replace. Now Saul, Saul's still pretty smart. He knows what's going on. And he's driven by fear and jealousy, two very dangerous things. And he becomes singularly focused on one thing, controlling the situation, protecting his claim to the throne at all costs. And in this case, by means of hunting down and killing this perceived usurper which is where we find ourselves today. David, last week we learned he, he just, he's, he's on the run. He's just said his final farewell, a very tearful goodbye to his best friend Jonathan, and now he's got to set out on his own as a wanted man. Now, we have a lot of content to cover. Um, we've, got, like, we've got five chapters. It's 114 verses. It covers three to four years of time and miles and miles of distance, and so we're not going to be able to go through all of it. Um, although I actually think that you'd probably benefit more from me standing here and reading the scripture all the way through and then ending than you would by hearing me talk about it. Um, we're going to go through quite a lot, so I'm just going to ask you to buckle up and hang with me. Um, we're going to be pulling together some different parts of this narrative to try to answer sort of a key question. Um, and we're going to try to tie this together at the end. But the question is, what's the, what is the value? What's the purpose? Is there any good that can come through going, going through times of intense pain, and hopelessness, and sorrow? Because I'm going to bet that there's people in this room that can maybe relate to that kind of a question. I know I can. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Samuel, that would be bad. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, if you actually have a Bible, open it up. If you have it on your device, please go there. 
We're going to go through 1 Samuel 21, um, and we'll start at the beginning. We're actually just going to cover one verse here. We're going to cover, the, so the very, very first thing that we find about David is that he's running for his life, and he's alone. So David has just left his friend uh, Jonathan. We're just going to cover one verse here. So David left Jonathan, and he went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why are you alone, and why is no one with you? Now, the text says that Ahimelech trembled when he met David. Um, now, it's, it's possible that uh, he may have done this out of respect for, for David because of his reputation as a warrior and as someone who was very close to Saul. Um, people actually did this back then. We read earlier when Samuel would walk into a town that the people would tremble, right? They would visibly tremble. Um, and I, I think we probably still do this today when someone of a, in authority, someone who we think could do us harm, we, we probably tremble ourselves. We may not do it as visibly as they did, but I think we do. So it could have been because of his reputation, but it could have been also because he was nervous because it would have been really, really unusual for someone in David's position to be traveling alone without some sort of an entourage. When someone is that prominent, they usually have some protection of some sort. And this is supported by the questions that he asked David in the second half of this verse. He basically asked David the same question two different ways when he said, why are you alone? And get this, this is exactly what David was, right? He was alone. He had just come from being a shepherd to instantly becoming a hero of the nation of Israel, a part of the king's court, right? Married to one of the king's daughters, best friends with the king's son, and now he is stripped of his position, isolated from his closest friends and family, and he's forced to run and hide in fear of his life. So it's natural that someone would want to go, David, why, why are you alone? The slides here didn't quite do what I wanted them to do, so I'm going to go to here. that work? Yeah. That's not quite it either. I wanted that verse. Is there a verse coming up? Sorry, guys. Let's go here. I'm messing up my slides. Can we go back one, please? Well, that's not it either. All right. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to find a verse that says that he went. It's not put, I, wanted, I didn't want the cave up. Okay. Go to First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 22, please. All right. So David left Gath, it says. And he escaped to the cave of Agilom. This is the very first verse of chapter 22. Now, I'm just going to stop there for a second. So not only is David alone, but now he has kind of gone to a place that he never expected that he would find himself. It's called the cave of Agilom. Now we'll go ahead. Maybe we can put the cave up now. (laughs) All right. All right. So there was a cave there. All right. I'm completely, off, I'm completely out, of, out of sorts now. So there was a cave that you saw. So I went to Google, and I'm like, Cave of Agilum, and it pulls up this cave, a picture of a cave. I'm going to tell you, I don't know if that was the actual cave or not, but there were enough pictures of this cave that made me think that, you know, so many people aren't going to put the wrong cave up. But, I mean, that could be in Hocking Hills for all I know, right? But this is where David finds himself, is in a place called the Cave of Agilum, right? Now, the Cave of Agilum was found... Um, uh, in uh, a place that, the sco- that scholars say was near uh, the Valley of Elah, right? And the Valley of Elah, 
ironically, is actually the place where David first rose to prominence by killing Goliath. It was right in that same area. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, from such, from prominent, you know, from such a great start, now he finds himself hiding in a cave in the very same area. And I will just say also that if you are interested, that the, the Valley of Elah is also the name of a, of a really fantastic movie, if you haven't seen it, with Tommy Lee Jones and Charlize Theron, and I highly recommend it. Um, it's a hard picture, hard picture to watch, though. So now, so here's the picture. David, he's alone. He's isolated. He's completely, you know, on his own, right? He's, he's on the run, and now he finds himself in a cave, right? Now, has anyone here ever actually been in a cave before? Like a real cave, Right? Right, not just like a hollow in the wall, not like Conkle's hollow or something, like a real cave, right? I, I, I have too, right? And caves are nice to visit, but I don't think it's somewhere that I would like to stay for very long, right? They, they're usually the home to wild animals. They usually house uh, insects, lots of bugs. T- they tend to be very wet, um, uh, very damp. And, and we're going to see later that people in, back in those days, they used caves as a place to sort of conduct their business, Right? And so this is where David is now, alone and hiding in a cave. But the one thing that we find is that David was not completely alone. And you probably already saw that slide. I'm not going to try and go back to it. So because after, you know, he's in this cave, but he's not abandoned, right? God has not left him on his own. God provided people in David's life to bring him comfort and support. So we find in chapter 22, verse 2, um, at the end of chapter uh, of verse 1, he said that when his brothers in his father's household heard about it, they went to him there, and all those who were in distress or in, dent or, or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So, so David was alone, but he wasn't abandoned. Right? God, God provided for David. He surrounded him with people. He surrounded him with his family. I know that when I've gone through hard times, I've gone through dark times, that that, you know, even the family that I didn't really want around me, I wanted them around me. Because there's just something about having family around you to bring you comfort when you're going through a hard time. And I'm sure they were a sight for sore eyes for David, but I'm going to also bet that they, their presence was a reminder to him of the danger that he put them in, right? Saul's, Saul's anger and fury were, were certainly going to spill over into those that David loved, Right? So then he has to carry this burden of caring for his family. The text also says that David's plight attracted um, uh, a, this, what he called this ragtag group of, of men. 400 are referenced here, 600 later in 23 verse 13. So he, he's got a following now, right? So 400, 400 men, but you've got to think that their families and, and their possessions are going to be following. So David is now not just responsible for himself and for his family, but but he's sort of taken on the, the role of, of a leader of, of this, this group of people who, who are struggling. They're struggling with their lot in life. They're feeling a sense of despair and hopelessness. There's something about David that they find attract, attractive. But I want to point out that, that David is no rebel, right? David's not some usurper. He's not trying to um, build up an army, right? This isn't like, for him, this isn't like the Game of Thrones or something. He's... he's trying to stay alive. He's a fugitive, right? He didn't do anything to deserve, to deserve this. Anyone ever feel that before? I've not done anything to deserve this, right? But here he is. So he's got his family. He's got 400 new friends. And God provides for him one, 
last bit of comfort through his best friend, Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 23, verse 15, it says that while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life once again, and Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and Jonathan went home, and David remained at Horish. Bittersweet time, right? David's going through a real rough patch. And his best friend, Jonathan, comes out to give him comfort and encouragement and hope. But it's also kind of a sad picture because, like, this is, like, the last time that they're going to really be together, at least it's recorded, as, as friends before Jonathan would later die. So it's happy and sad, right? All of these things being stripped out of David's life. And I look at David and I wonder, what must he have been thinking? What must he have been feeling, right? I wish there was some way that I could, like, pull out of this text and just put myself in David's shoes and understand, like, then I could, I could know, like, is there a way out of this? Is there a way to kind of get through this? I wish I could, like, have a copy of his diary or something like that. And then I remember that we actually do have that. Um, David wrote a lot of the Psalms, right? He wrote a lot of the Psalms that we read. The Psalm that we, um, just, that we just read together in the church occurred during this time in David's life. We find comfort and encouragement during times when we feel desperation through the Psalms. And during this specific time in David's life, he wrote this, Psalm 142, 1 through 5. He said, I cry out to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. I'm going to keep moving on. So not only was David alone, but not abandoned, but he had limited options. And sometimes he had limited options, and when he was, um, like, felt like he was backed into a corner, um, he had to make some difficult decisions in order to survive. Right? Sometimes you're at a place where you have nowhere left to turn and nothing left to do, and sometimes you have to do things that you wouldn't normally want to do. And there's a few instances of that in this uh, group of uh, verses, and I'm only going to have time to cover one of them. Um, so we're going to read out of uh, 1 Samuel 21 and kind of continue with his interaction with Ahimelech. So Ahimelech, Ahimelech asks him the question, why are you alone? And David answered Ahimelech the priest and said, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So later, the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. We'll come back to that next part in a second. There's no way to, like, sugarcoat this. There's no way around it. D David basically lied when he asked why he was alone. Now, you could speculate, and people do speculate, why he did this. Like, why did, why did David just not come out and say, you know, I'm on the run, right? Because it's possible that he didn't know where Ahimelech's loyalties were, right? He didn't know if he could trust Ahimelech. Um, maybe he wanted to protect Ahimelech and the priests by giving them, like, deniability, 
that they would say, I didn't know that David was on the run. No one ever told us or anything like that. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's things you could say to help justify why David took the path that he did. But any way you slice it, David deceived Ahimelech to get some much-needed food. And later, he receives protection from Ahimelech in the form of the sword of Goliath, which apparently they just had laying around in the city of Nob. Right? Now, the text doesn't excuse David's actions. The Bible, sometimes it just lays it bare and it says, this is what happened. It just describes them. David needed help, but he also needed what all good fugitives need, a cover story. And so he did what it took to survive. And by that act, that act of instinctual, instinctive survival that he, he took, he sealed the fate of Himelech and his priest friends. Because we see in verse 7 that David wasn't the only one in Nob that day. One of Saul's servants was there, verse 7, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, and he was Saul's chief shepherd. So David was a shepherd. Doeg was a shepherd. I wonder if they like had a shepherd conversation or something like that. They talked about sheep and stuff. But at the end of the day, um, that decision to be in Nob and to, to get the help of Ahimelech, it had... Um, a tragic consequence, because Doeg left and went and told Saul what happened. And Saul, being the reasonable person, you know, assumed the best and let Ahimelech kind of get off with a pass. No, instead, Saul called Ahimelech and 85 of his priest friends to him and demanded an answer for why, why would he help, why would Ahimelech help David? Saul said to him, this is 1 Samuel 22 in verse 13. Saul said to Ahimelech, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of, son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. And Ahimelech answered the king and said, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? You think that's a good answer? The king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. So he, Ahimelech pleaded the fifth. He said, I, I don't know anything about anything. I just, I did what a, a good priest would do. I, I helped somebody that was in trouble. But the king, again, driven by fear and jealousy, said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. So in chapters 17 through 19, Saul tells his guards that are standing around him to kill Ahimelech and the 85 priests that are with him. And even the guards around Saul knew that this was crazy, that they weren't going to do it. They just stood back and said, we're not going to do it, probably at risk of their own life. So Saul then turned to Doeg and said, you do it. Doeg apparently had no such reservations. And he drew up his sword, and he killed Ahimelech and the 85 priests. And if that wasn't good enough, then Doeg went to the city of Nob, and he killed everybody that was there, the rest of the priests and their families and all of the livestock. And only one person got out of there alive. His name was um, uh, the son of, uh, this one son of Ahimelech, um, son of Ahitab. His name was Abiathar in verse, tw- uh, verse 20. It said that he escaped and fled to join David. And he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew it. 
That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you, he's trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. Notice David's response, right? He owns it. I'm responsible, right? An innocent, seemingly innocent decision to to seek help from Ahimelech. Ahimelech's seemingly innocent decision to give that help led to the the killing, the murder of over 100 people, hundreds of people probably, right? And now that's a a weight that David has to carry for the, the rest of his life. That his path to the throne is covered in blood, right? David didn't want this. He didn't ask for this. We read again in the Psalms. This is, this is a psalm that is attributed to this specific time when, when the priests of Nob were killed. And David wrote and he said, Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. That's Psalm 52. That's the outpouring of David's heart. I'm going to keep moving here. So the third thing. So David's alone, right, but not completely abandoned. He has to make hard decisions sometimes, and sometimes those decisions had tragic consequences. And then David, sometimes, like, he was, he was like, given an opportunity, a clear path to the throne, certain victory, and in those moments, he refused to compromise. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. We'll start at verse 1. It said that after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand uh, for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So Saul had taken a detour for pers- from pursuing David in chapter 23. We, we unfortunately had to skip over chapter 23. <laughs> I would encourage you to read it. But he had to take a detour from pursuing David to deal with a, a Philistine threat. And then he took care of the Philistines, and he turned his attention back to David with 3,000 of his men in tow. And in the desert of Engedi, which was on the western shore of the Dead Sea, about 35 miles or so from Jerusalem, he had to go to the bathroom, right? You ever see that in a movie? I'm just going to take a little side here. You go to, you watch me. No one ever goes to the bathroom, right? TV shows, no one ever goes to the bathroom. It's just one of those things you're like, I appreciate that about the Bible. It just says Saul had to do what he had to do, right? Well, as luck would have it, David and his men were hiding in the back of the very cave that Saul chose 
to do his business in. David's men naturally took this as a sign that Yahweh had miraculously provided an opportunity to kill Saul. And then we hear an almost comical conversation about God's will for David's life, basically in a public urinal, while Saul was just feet away, right? It's kind of, it's kind of a comical picture, right? So much so that, that his men even referenced kind of a prophecy that isn't really even recorded in Scripture, right? So David then took this opportunity to sneak up on Saul, and rather than deal a killing blow, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, which seems peculiar, to say the least. We don't really know what it meant. It could mean that he just wanted to use it as proof that he could have killed Saul. It could have been a symbol um, of the, the, the kingdom being torn or cut away from Saul. We've seen that before. We honestly don't know. But whatever the meaning of this act, David immediately felt sorry for it. We read further in verse 5, chapter 24. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Can you get that? And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to lay a hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So whatever the meaning of the cutting of the corner, it was enough that David felt horrible about it, right? It seems like an overreaction. And so then he forcefully, it says he had forcefully had to hold his men back from going after Saul. And twice in this passage, he, he says he's doing it because Saul is the Lord's anointed. It's not enough just to read from this text that David was just being forgiving or that he was being generous. One commentator said that it's more important to David that he complies with the will of God where it's unmistakably clear. And in this instance, what appears to others as the will of God to kill Saul seems to David to be a temptation from which God will preserve him. Um, I don't know if anyone here, I'm, I'm not going to have time, but if anyone here has ever um, heard of the book, uh, A Tale of Three Kings, um, it's a great book um, written by Gene Edwards. Um, I think it's required reading for anyone that's ever had a spear thrown at them, right? How do you respond when someone throws a spear at you, right? We learn about that in here. And there's he does a great job. It's a very creative way of kind of like trying to visualize the conversation, just the, the back and forth between David and his men as they're trying to justify their actions and David trying to say, I'm not going to become like Saul. God's going to have to deal with this a different way. In fact, it happens again in 1 Samuel 26. We actually have almost the exact same scene, but this time in a different location. Saul and his men are encamped somewhere and they're sleeping and Saul is in the middle of his camp, and he's just like dead asleep. He's got his spear in the ground at his head. He's got his, uh, the captain of his, his guard, of his army there with him. He's surrounded by his men. And David and one of his uh, soldiers sneak into the camp at night. It says in 26 verse 7 that David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep in the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head, and Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Almost the same exact conversation happens. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I will not strike him twice. And David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, The Lord himself 
will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get a spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. (laughs) I'm not going to kill him, but let's take some of his things. Again, we read later that he, in both of those instances that I just read, and we're not covering it, there's this great interaction between David and Saul. David both times comes out to Saul from a distance and says, hey, like, I've got your robe, I've got your spear, like, God's given you to me, but I'm not doing it. And both times, Saul, he's moving closer to, like, realizing what's going on. And I encourage you to read these. But again, David says, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give in to this temptation to... Um, to, to make myself the king, right? David didn't hold to the old adages um, that drive our modern dog-eat-dog decision-making. To David, the ends did not always justify the means. We live in a very ends-justifying-the-means society. Desperate times for David did not always call for desperate measures, unless it involves lying to Ahimelech or stealing some stuff. <laughs> okay. David wasn't perfect, right? Instead, what carried David through each day and night, through each grief and each trial, each victory, every defeat, um, I think we can find it again in the Psalms. He depended on God. Psalm 57, just a part of it. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I cry out to the Most High, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. There's something there, something in David's perspective that I think I could see myself being one of the 400 or 600 people that just say, I want, to, I want that too, you know? So let's summarize the ground that David has covered in these past few chapters over the past three to four years. David was alone. He was faced with making impossible decisions. He was pressured to act. We actually read in 1 Samuel 23, we didn't get there, but he was actually betrayed by some people that he even protected. He was tempted to compromise. Can anyone else here relate? I mean, maybe you haven't been hiding in a cave. Maybe you're not like literally on the run for your life, right? But maybe you faced something similar. Maybe you've faced isolation. Anyone here ever faced loss or betrayal? Disappointment, desperation, temptation? They just throw these words out like they're, you know, just pull them out of a thesaurus, right? They all mean the same thing, but... They're not unique to David. They're not unique to what David went through. They're not unique to what any... It's just it's part of the human condition. And it's entirely possible, probable even, that in the midst of whatever painful situation you're in, you're asking maybe the same question that David was asking. What good can possibly come from all of this? Is there any good that can come from what I'm going through right now? One thing that I do know is that there's no simple answer. There's no simple answer to the question of pain and suffering. So I'm not going to presume to give you like three points. I'm not going to give, you know, there's 
shallow platitudes, right? We don't, we don't need that. But um, as I've kind of thought through this passage and, and what God's been talking to me about, um, I can't help but think that uh, we might have gotten an entirely King David if we hadn't seen fugitive David. Because David was already proven to be God's man, right? He, his heart was fully after God's. We know this, but maybe God wasn't done making him throne ready. Consider this. David was the man after God's own heart. He was chosen to be Saul's replacement, but his path to the throne would be nothing like Saul's. Tom mentioned this, uh, Burns mentioned this um, a few times back when he was talking about Saul's path to being king, um, that Saul basically went from being a nobody to a king in what felt like 24 hours, right? His rise to the top was, was quick, right? He rocketed to the top. And the text never explicitly says this, but I can't help but wonder if Saul's epic failure was in part due to his relatively easy path to power. David would take a completely different road. David's path to the throne was one that would take him for a season. He thought he was going to be the king, and instead he went a completely opposite direction, right? And I think the same applies to you and me. I think that we were on a path and we think that that this is the path that God has us on. Um, we've, accepted, we've accepted the gift of, of God through Jesus Christ, right? We think, okay, that, this is it, right? But the path that God has us on, it's not just a path to heaven. It's a path on this world here and now. And maybe, just maybe, God's not finished with his work of transforming you and me. And so... Sometimes we have to go through stuff that we find difficult to bear. Dallas Willard, uh, in his book, The Allure of Gentleness, he talks about a way in which pain can serve a good purpose. It's a good book. I recommend it. Um, He says that it's only in the heat of pain and suffering, both mental and physical, that real human character is forged. One does not develop courage without facing danger, patience without trials, wisdom without heart and brain-racking puzzles, endurance without suffering or temperance and honesty without temptation. These are the very things we treasure the most about people. Ask yourself if you'd be willing to be devoid of these virtues, and if your answer is no, then don't scorn the means of obtaining them. Now, he finishes. He says, I'm not saying that we should go looking for pain so that we can develop character. That's not at all necessary. All we need to do is make an honest effort to discover what is right and wrong, good and bad, And when we're convinced on these points, then simply go out and face life for what it's worth. There's going to be plenty of opportunity to develop character. But you will never develop character by running from unpleasant situations any more than you will develop your intellectual capacities by running from study or tone up on your six-pack abs by avoiding exercise. That's a lot of reading, I know. But something struck me there. Because I believe that God is in the business of redeeming and renewing this world. And he's still in the business of redeeming and renewing you and me day by day, even by means that we may find in the moment difficult to bear. And I'm reminded of what Paul had to say about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, Therefore we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but 
on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I don't feel like I need to expound much more on what Paul said. I think he summed it up. But I think that Paul realized that through all of the physical hardship that he experienced, and if you know about Paul, you know experienced a lot of physical hardship. He felt that he was compensated for that with an inner spiritual renewal, such that he was able, with this perspective, to describe his afflictions as light and momentary. Do you feel like that's something you could say about what you're going through right now? Do you feel like you have the perspective to say this is a light and momentary thing? Maybe that's a work that God is doing in our hearts. That's just one thing to consider. Um, one more, um, as far as like what, what, what's the, what is, is there any purpose? Can any good come out of this stuff? Is there any value that comes when I, when I consider the, the question of pain? I think about how did David actually respond in the moment? What came out of David in the moment? As we've already seen, David's experiences at being hunted by Saul contributed to some of the most beautiful writings that we've ever seen, the Psalms. And I tend to read the Psalms like in isolation, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, I just, I read these, I read these Psalms and I don't consider that they came out of real people going through real experiences in real time. So I need to think about the fact that without David's experiences, many of these Psalms may not even exist. And I'd be like, but God has used those to bring me comfort in times of struggle. And in considering the impact the Psalms have had on me personally, I was reminded about how much art, yes, film, but also poetry, music, painting, how it's sourced from real-life experiences of the artists, right? So so much, so much that we see, so much of the beauty that we see around us comes out of the, the sorrow that other people have had to endure, and they've expressed it through art, artistic mediums. And that this can be a means, then, of conveying comfort, not just to the person doing the art, but to people that get to experience it. And you're like, where are you going with this, Dan? Like, I, I'll tell you, it's because, like, I don't know about you, but does anyone here have, like, a song that comes to mind that, that, found, that gives them comfort? Like, when you're going through a hard time, is there a song, right? Is there, like, a poem that you might read that, like, that, that when you were going through a real dark time, that, like, that God used that to, like, speak truth into your life, Right? I still remember that, it, you, I'm going to date myself, but like Kristen and I went through like a really, really hard time when we lived in Arizona. We lost um, twin boys. We were pregnant. And um, I probably shared that here before. I, I lose track, honestly. I apologize. But like we, there were a couple songs that came to, um, that, that brought us comfort. There's this um, song by Stephen Curtis Chapman called With Hope. And there's a song by a, a, a group called Watermark um, called Glory Baby. And these songs that just like they speak, but those songs came out of, like, the hurt that other people experienced, and they shared them, and, and God still uses those songs even today in my life. I, I'll tell you, I will never eat mac and cheese or chocolate pudding without thinking about Mary Ramoy, how out in Scottsdale, when Kristen and I were grieving in our little apartment, like, she didn't know what to do, and all she could think was to bring us some comfort food, and those were what she brought us. And I tell you, I never, I don't, I don't consume those things without thinking about God's goodness in providing for us, you know? And maybe there's something that God's brought you through. Maybe, maybe you've gone through a hard time. And um, as painful as it may appear, God could, this, this thing could be used to bring meaning and comfort and hope to another. And you say, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want this to bring meaning and comfort and hope to another person. And you say, I say, okay, it's okay. I just want you to consider 
Just consider this. Maybe, though, it might require that you step out. Maybe you might have to just put pencil to paper, voice to lyric, brush to paint, ingredient to recipe, hands to clay, feet to pavement. All I'm trying to say is that whatever you experience doesn't have to be kept inside, right? And you don't have to be afraid to give it a voice, if not for your own benefit, but potentially for the benefit of others. And you say, Dan, that's, that's too much to bear. And I say, okay, I understand. I want to ask um, Henry Taylor to join me now, um, hopefully. That's good. Um, so if you haven't gotten a chance to meet Henry and Gabby, um, I think you should. Um, they joined us, what, two years now? Um, when Gabby joined us as a ministry, uh, ministry resident, uh, part of our program here. And um, Henry's going to share with us how um, God's been kind of moving in him to express the things, the journey he's been on. Um, and I th- we talked about this, but like, this doesn't, we're not talking about, like, not everyone's going to be able to write a song. Um, we're not saying that you have to write a song, but um, I hope that Henry's story will encourage you in some way. Thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, so, um, so we, we moved, I grew up in, in California and, and we moved here about almost two years ago and, um, so, so this song that I'm going to share is, um, it's called the joy of the Lord. Um, and, uh, let me just give you a little context because otherwise I think it'll kind of be out there but not have much meaning uh so so about five years ago my mom passed away um and um and that was obviously a very hard experience um and uh you know you talk about songs songs that stick out and and there was a song like this night my wife and i came home and i turned this song on it's it's called anchor of my soul by josh garrels and beautiful eulogy and I just was like sobbing and I just kept playing it and, and crying um, and you know there yeah so there's just there's there's meaning in in music and but I also want to you know just writing um, I'm not a journaler um, but but writing has been super helpful for me um, and so about a year and a half ago um, a friend's wife, got cancer um and they have six kids um and like all still in in school under high school age uh or or in high school and and down um and his experience with his wife was just so like um it was so similar to my um my struggle with my mom and and it was so uh difficult to watch you you're just sort of there um how can i be with you how can I support you um but also like don't let me you know impose myself on you you've got enough going on um and and so I wrote this what I'm going to share in a couple minutes uh as um just sort of a a remembering of that um and and really it's just like uh I'm gonna I'm gonna wait for you, God. I'm going to wait for you here. Um, even when I can't feel you, I can't 
tell if you're here or not. Um, and so, uh, you know, like Dan said, though, it doesn't have to be music. I, I would just encourage you guys, um, you know, feel free to talk to me afterwards. I don't know, you know, grief comes different levels, different uh, shapes and forms. Um, but, but this has been a really healthy way for me to sort of express uh, a lot of my grief. Um, and, and then I started putting music to it. So that's what you guys get to hear this morning. So... Come fill my body with ache. O wretched man am I in this body of hate? Am I nothing to you, God, but a body to waste? Still here I will wait. The burden's gravity like a weight on my back. Oh, wretched man, am I in this body of lack? A canvas littered rife with stripes on the back. But here I will wait. Tell me, curse God and his name The ones who say to me, curse God to his face Have no notion of the sea with the ship in its wake So here I wait Wait not for the jewels nor the heavenly crown For I am but a mist, breath of God in the ground My friends have turned to hate and I'd be the same Oh, I'd be the same I be the same, but for the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord, which renews all strength. The wind under wings, and the meaning and pain. The thirstless quality, though the clouds bring no rain. 
A life without like staring death in the face. You were not in the tremors, splitting mountains up high. You were not in the thunder, nor the turbulent skies. You were not in the flames, and so alone here am I. And here I will wait. For you, for you, for you, for you, for you. The winds are changing now. And the battle is won. And the people say to me, "Look at all that you've done. All your troubles passed away, and the day has begun." And I'd say the same. Oh, I'd say the same. Oh, I'd say the same, but for the joy of the way. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray together. I don't even know where to go from here, God, other than to say that we're at your feet and uh, that you would just give us your heart, that you would develop within us whatever it is you want to develop within us, character, resilience, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus that whatever comes our way, God, that we would say the same thing, that, that you should be exalted. God, if there's a way that beauty can rise from ashes, you're the one that can do it. And if you prick hearts in that direction, God, we'll give you praise. And if it's a healing balm to those around them, God, We'll give you glory. Thank you for, um, for never moving, God. Even in the midst of our, our sorrow, we know that you're a fixed point. We look to you. Give us your heart. We pray through your son. Amen.